You're right, George. Paul's all right, he's got his jacket on. Don't be nervous, John. I'm not, Macker. I got something in my head, you know, and all the walls of Rome couldn't stop me. <laughs> You're right, pickled onion. I remember so vividly showing up at a show and you'd be in your ordinary clothes and then you'd take out of your little suitcase your suit and your shirt and put them on and then finally your beetle boots and you'd stand up and you just looked at each other and like, yeah, there we are. My name's Eric Taros. I'm Richard Buskin. The Beatles, naked. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! Richard, I think both of us 
if we could go back in the time capsule, would love to pick out a Beatles show, any Beatles show, even in the waning days, maybe especially in the waning days. Well, you mean like even Suffolk Downs? Uh, oh, man. Oh, especially Suffolk Downs. Yes. Oh, as uh, my friends have said, I would have been a normal human being if I'd just seen it. But if you had one show or one era you could see the Beatles live in, which would it be? What for you would be the one if you, you know, your Desert Island performance you could do? Most people would say, because of the lifelong commitment, Suffolk Downs. But in point of fact, I think what I'd really like to have seen them is either at the Cavern or in Germany. I think that's, yeah, I think me because too. especially John Lennon always said that that was their best live performance. And, and to see the craziness firsthand and actually, you know, we have a facsimile of, of pretty much everything else one way or the other, whether it's a TV show or, or, you know, people's home movies or whatever. We can kind of guess what it was like. But when it comes to Germany, the only thing we really have is that one tape that uh, Ted Taylor was running in Christmas time, 62. That's really the only indication we get of what it must have been like. Oh, yeah. Would you have liked to have seen them with Pete Best or once Ringo joined in, in that, you know, in the cavern or at the If Star it's Club? a choice between the two, I'd rather see him with Ringo. The only thing that intrigues me is uh, I had a discussion with Billy J. Kramer one time. And he was defending Pete Best up and down. And he said, well, you had to see Pete with the Beatles at the Cavern. He said, at the Cavern, he was the perfect drummer. And I was like, why? Because, you know, let's face it, love, I love Pete, but he wasn't quite the timekeeper or dynamic drummer that Ringo was. And he said, no, because of the shape of the Cavern and that uh, Pete was very heavy on the toms, he said it would just reverberate and mix with Paul's bass and just go right through your gut, as he would say. And he said, so it was really a, an, uh, an amazing place to see the Beatles, the Cavern with Pete. He thought in the Cavern Club, Pete was the better Beatles drummer. So this show, what we decided to do, we were sort of thinking about, you know, Beatles live, and we decided to break it down into a two-parter, right? This show is going to be about what we consider their most exciting recorded live performances, anything in front of an audience, whether it's for the BBC or wherever, but it's a live performance. And we're just going for a combination of best audio and best yes. performance. And for a second show, we're going to have interesting performances, right? Where it's like the more unusual songs that maybe they performed or some... More unusual yeah. performances. I, like for this show, um, I can, I can uh, do a little bit of a spoiler in that... Uh, I would love to have gotten I Feel Fine in here from uh, Candlestick Park, but it's really the recording is right. just a couple of inches below where I'd like it to be. And and also, it's more of an interesting performance than it is a dynamic, great performance. And I think really the, the right. interaction between the Beatles and the crowd, and I'm very interested in the symbiotic relationship between the Beatles and their crowd, especially as it gets later yeah. in the game and, and the crowd is, in a sense, overpowering the Beatles uh, but they're creating a sound together that will never happen again. This is the more musical show, I think. Yeah. I mean, for me, the same thing I really wanted to have in here, rock and roll music, right? Such an exciting track. And, you know, they were doing it over, from 64 through 66. Um, but we never found one that we actually thought, that's a great performance that even rivals the studio, did we? 
No, not like the most amazing of a song that we've all heard a zillion times, both live and in the studio, and that being Twist and Shout. Yeah. What I absolutely love about this from the Albert Hall, April 18th, 63, is it's at the start of sort of national Beatlemania, right? It's early on. It's April 63, where almost a year before they hit the States, and we've already got the screaming and what we have in this performance also, along with the great sound quality coming off the radio, is the fact that they do the whole number, right? Because they used to truncate it. Yeah, I mean, as as time went on, I think Lennon's vocal in this is his enthusiasm was never higher in front of an audience uh, as mm. far as performing this particular song, at least that I've ever heard. They're giving it everything. It's like a studio taken away, right? Yeah. You get this ferocious performance. And one of the things I really love about this song, actually, is when you listen to the Beatles version and then you compare it to the original by the top notes, and then that actually didn't do much of anything. The Isleys reworked it, I think, a few months later, all in 62. Here we are, uh, you know, a year later, and the Beatles have just turned it into this ferocious piece of rock and roll, a hybrid, in a sense, of R&B and the kind of greaser club rock that they were doing in Germany. And and I don't think there's a better performance of it live that I've ever heard. When did they start truncating the song? That happened on the American tours in the summer of 64. It's such a pity because, yes, it's a really dynamic opener for a show, without a doubt. But to truncate it like that, I don't think it's the way to treat that song. They're just treating it as a warm-up as opposed to, you know, giving it its full due. <laughs> I'm 
obviously a track that's usually associated with the Cavern Club, but this time it's a live BBC performance coming from the, you know, the Playhouse Theatre in London and a, a radio show called Easy Beat, which had a live audience to it. So it is, uh, it's not like the other studio recordings that we usually associate as BBC sessions. There's actually kids there. That's quite a performance. I don't think I've ever heard them on a recording where they've got that much edge and aggression. And they're probably hung over. This was recorded on June 19th, 1963, the day after Paul McCartney's 21st birthday. Uh, do you remember, there was a bit of bother at that uh, at that particular... Yeah, let's see. It wasn't he blew out the candles. Oh, yeah. And John took a shovel to Bob Boiler. There you go. I tell you, they know how to have fun in Liverpool. <laughs> right. Yeah, so Bob's like in the hospital and... John's kind of gone into retreat and the other three go down to London without him and they don't even know if he's going to show up. It could have been the end right there. And it will lead to their first national headline on the back page of the Daily Mirror, Beetle in Brawl. Sorry I socked you. Yes. Uh, at the time, it was disastrous. And I think it took them a couple of weeks to be sure that they had ridden this wave and that they, they were going to get to the other side of it intact. But for a time, they were truly concerned that this could be their undoing. Well, I, I think he came within an inch of killing the guy, number one, which yeah. would have been the end. And yeah. on top of that, you have definitely seen the telegram that Brian sent supposedly as John Lennon, you know, totally worded as Brian would do it and not John, you know, oh, real sorry about it. And yeah. Bob would not tell me what the settlement was. But I remember he began the story by saying, now the other two gentlemen involved in this story are no longer with us, so you're only getting my perspective, which I always thought mm -hmm. was very gentlemanly. He was still honoring yep. this thing, you know, 20 years later. I thought yep. that that was kind of neat about him. But he said that uh, what he said, he said he was acting as MC. He said, first and foremost, there was an awful lot of drink going on, as it would in a Liverpool party. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> this is kind of this, yeah. I, you know, I'd never heard this story. Anyway... He's calling, uh, as people are coming through the door to Paul's party or whatever, he's making a little jab at people, you know, making a little dig, uh, yeah. you know, good-natured. But uh, he said he was very drunk. He said everybody else was drunk. But he said when John walked through, uh, John had now, of course, just come home from Spain where he'd gone off with Brian Epstein. Mm -hmm. And he goes, well, we have John Lennon here, and uh, apparently the honeymoon is over. Or back from his honeymoon. I can't remember if he said the honeymoon is over or he's back from his honeymoon in Spain. And he goes, then, and he had turned away, but the next thing as he turned towards John, he was on top of him and smacking him. And that's like the last he remembered. He said he was out. Huh. Because yeah, that's different. I had always heard that Bob sidled up to John and whispered something in his ear that, you know, inferred something that he didn't like. And that's what caused the fury. No, according to Bob, he said, I was acting like a compare, yeah. acting as the host, and everybody got a yeah. little dig. But when he said that to John, he had no idea John would take it that way. But in, in retrospect, he's, he kind of said, you know, in those days, homosexuality was a was a crime. You could go to jail. Yeah. And so that he, he felt immediately sorry he had said that, and uh, but he was very gracious about it and, you know, didn't say what a monster Lennon was for whacking me. Anyway, hmm. this next song... Also from that same performance where I can't believe they played this well, uh, kind of hung over. This takes a song and transforms it, I think. Thank You Girl is a very serviceable B-side. 
But yep, in this it context, it was part of their stage act, you know, throughout the summer, you know, when they did that residence, you know, all the Weston Supermare and all that stuff that they toured that summer. I think this is a great example of the live performance just cutting the studio version to shreds. always loved Ringo's drumming on Thank You Girl on the record as well and it's great to hear him doing it live. Just so tight. Yep. And that Beatlesque mm-hmm. chord at the end. Just it's just such a tight performance and like I say when I, I first got this tape I never thought of it in context of geez the night before they're all drinking and yeah. A terrible thing happens. So this should have this next song we're going to close it off uh, Brian Bathtube as John would say has a little chat and we they're trying to pretend that his Paul's birthday was a few days ago even though it had been the night yes, before because it's going to be broadcast on the 23rd exactly so I wonder as he was wielding the shovel if John Lennon would have dedicated from me to you to Bob Wooler we don't normally play requests on Easy Beat but all the ladies in the country seem to have known for weeks and weeks that the Beatles were going to be on today and I've been overwhelmed by a shoal of letters all saying will you please ask the Beatles to sing especially for me etc etc when I were to read out all the names I'd be here right into the middle of Gene Metcalf's bumper bundle so for everybody who asked for it here is from me to you
Yeah, interesting, actually, this one. When I heard it, I thought, yeah, this is better than we heard them doing it, I think, at Washington or, you know, some other shows in 64. Yeah. Well, they're pretty much retiring it by 64. I mean, one of the cool things about when they got back from 60, from that February visit in 64 is how they uh, were telling the reporter, hey, we had to do Please Please Me. It's in the charts over there. And I was like, I'm sure it was the last time they ever did it. Um, right. You know, that kind of thing. But this is, yeah, I mean, this is a great version of For Me To You. And actually the next one, as we jump along, a few months more into the fall of 63. And of course the Beatles had a kind of linked for whatever reason to Liverpool comedian Ken Dodd. What do you mean for whatever reason? You just said Liverpool. Well, I could see grouping them with other Liverpudlian musicians, but why a comedian? I guess you would know better. Ken Dodd was a national figure, and I think the Beatles weren't quite a national figure. But was he like the only thing out of Liverpool in those days that everybody... Oh, God, no. No, not at all. I mean, you, you had a football team for one thing as well. But uh, no, I, you know, there'd been comedians from Liverpool down the years. And Ken Dodd was a singer as well as... He was mainly a comedian, but he, he was a guy who could sing. And he actually in 65, he had a number one UK hit with this ballad called Tears. Tears for souvenirs are all you left me Memories of a love you never met Very schlocky. It was one of the biggest sellers in the UK of the 1960s. reason I'm mentioning Ken is because he did have this radio show and the Beatles would go and do a scene at 6.30 the next month with Ken, which was very funny. And I'm sure most people have seen that whole thing mm -hmm. where they're talking about the Beatles motion picture coming up that they were going to make and all that. Yeah. But this is a tremendous radio performance of uh, a song that they debuted before it ever, ever came out in, uh, in August of 63. They played this at Bournemouth and saying, hey, this is our new record. It's going to come out next week. I wish we could play the Bournemouth performance. We really can't. But we can play this amazing performance of it from John Lennon's birthday in 1963, October 9th, and She Loves You on the Ken Dodd Show. Did you know that there is a new sound emerging from Liverpool and being created by a new beat group known as the Doddles? Well, what do you know? If you wait here, for the next three minutes, you should learn quite a lot from our guests for this week. A group of young men who know more about the Liverpool sound than most. Who else but the Beatles?
That is such a perfect performance. It's very close to the record and it's got all of that energy because I think it is. It's their new single, right? And they've got that energy for it and it shows. And I was wondering, you know, which performance of She Loves You we would pick. Getting a bit ahead of ourselves, we don't have I Want to Hold Your Hand in this show because as exciting as it is and it's great to see it on Sullivan or on Morecambe and Wise, we didn't think, either of us, that there was really a great performance of it. Not in front of an audience. I mean, there's good performances of it, but if you listen to it without the visual live, it's not as dynamic as these other song choices we have. It really isn't. And sometimes, in I think in many of these songs that we're playing for you today, the live version is the best version, and this next song is a case in point. So a couple of weeks on from the Ken Dodd show, the Beatles find themselves in Sweden, and this is, to me, just the best live version of Money. It comes that the next one closest would be in December, but this is just a little bit better recorded and a little more exciting from Carla Plon Studios. Now we'd like to sing a song from our new LP, new released, LP. New LP. <laughs> released in November. The song's called Money.
Wow. What a difference that is to the version they did at the Decca audition. Yes. I mean, it's so heavy. I mean, it's, it's, it, to me, it's just got this gravitas, I guess is the best word. I mean, I mean, it's true, right? At the Decca audition, there's like no real energy to it. It's like they're just knocking it out. It's amazing, really. And here, as you said, it's heavy. You know, this is like heavy rock in 63. This is pointing out, uh, in a sense, to me, it's great that you bring up the Decca audition. Ringo and Paul became this unit, and uh, yeah. you know, in, in the live shows at this time. Ringo, it's interesting, the studio years kind of softened his play. But as you could tell back in Thank You, Girl, and in this song and a couple of the other songs coming up, he was a heavy hitter. Yeah, he's great live, right? You know, we, you see that in the Washington performance where he's just beating the crap out of the snare and the cymbals. Oh, that's, well, that's the highlight coming up in a few songs, a real highlight of Ringo's and his syncopated sound. You know, Gene Krupa would have been proud. But this next one, from the same bale of hay, as they say, uh, once again, you know, the legend is in Sweden, the kids were a bit more reserved and that the Beatles, the legend I've heard is that they had to, they kind of had to work a little harder to win the crowd over. Um, this, by the way, I should t point out to folks uh, that they did do a television show as well, Drop In, but these recordings are actually from mm -hmm. a, you know, radio gig that they were doing as opposed to the TV show. And I think they played with a harder edge. These performances in this period are among my favourites of them on stage because they haven't had the edges knocked off them yet completely, as John would say. You know, they've still got that energy and that edge. And as you said, you know, like with money, it's actually a heavy performance. I agree with you. This is the crescendo. Late 63, and I always cap it off with the performance we're going to hear a song from in a, in a few minutes from Washington, D.C. in 64, early 64. That, to me, mm. is the mountaintop of them playing live. And, and you'll notice where they excel is that reinterpretation of R&B or soul records that they loved. And no better case in point yeah. than John Lennon taking on Smokey Robinson and the Miracles and transforming You Really Got a Hold on Me. And we'd like to carry on with a number by an American group called The Miracles, it's called You've Really Got a Hold on Me.
Thank you. Thank you. That is such a beautiful performance. And, you know, something you said before about winning over the Swedish audience might be a bit harder. Traditionally, one of the most difficult audiences in the world is the UK. You know, I always remember hearing that when I lived in England, people visiting from the US, actors, whoever, appearing on stage in England and, and you know, musicians would say that winning over a British audience was pretty tough and also extremely rewarding because once you do get them on your side, you feel like you've really earned it. I really, really love what very subtly John does in You Really Got a Hold On Me. And and like I say, the whole band, Ringo, just on fire as usual, just yeah. holding that whole thing together as Paul and Ringo. And it allows John to do, like if you listen to Smokey's original it's a lovely song, but it's not this. It's it's kind of sweet, whereas John makes it this desperate plea, almost, I think. I, I think there's far more yearning in John's performance than there is in Smokey's. So once again, I think it outstrips the original in power. Yeah, I agree. And also, we haven't really talked about George's musicianship up to this point. With a lot of the live performances, obviously the spotlight's often on him for a solo. Doesn't always pass the audition. We know that. Um, and so, you know, George was someone who often worked on his solos right in the studio. Yeah. And they evolved and he was a perfectionist. And so we were limited in some of these performances here that we were choosing where everything's going great and then it gets to the solo. Yeah. And it kind of lets the performance down. So, you know, that that's why often we're not focusing on George's performance so much. Well, in the next song, though, this is one place where I think George truly rose to the occasion. Oh, Maybe yeah. it was the intense nature of being, you know, playing for the Queen Mum or whatever, but on the Royal Variety Show, this is the most letter-perfect version of, of Till There Was You. There's not a flaw in it, and this is a really lovely uh, recording of it. I remember playing this recording for the guys at Apple, and they said, that sounds better than what we have. So, um, <laughs> and it was, it was an inline recording. You know, some guy in England who was catching it as it was going out and therefore not the compressed sound that we're normally used to hearing from the kinescope. So it's a, a really lovely version, I think, never better of Till There Was You from the Royal Variety Show. Better than Apple had it. The next song we'd like to sing now is one which is a bit slower. This is from the show The Music Man, and it's also been recorded by our favorite American group, Sophie Tucker. I never heard it at all 
Now that's absolutely fabulous. You're right. I can hear always the nervousness in his voice and you can see it when you watch the performance, but he gets through it. He holds it together. And we, you know, this show that we're putting on here is mainly high energy songs, right? That's the excitement of live. Um, but here it's just the, the pure beauty of it. And as you say, George's guitar work is really quite delightful. Perfect. And you know, George, if you listen to enough of this stuff, you notice he very rarely does the same lead twice. You know, it's come some variation mm-hmm. of it or something that's in his head in that second, which I actually come to, have come to love because it keeps things fresh. It's, you just don't know what you're going to get. Sometimes it works better than others. But this next one, once again, kind of switching back to interpretations of their favorite records. I think the greatest concert the Beatles ever performed on American soil was on February 11th, 1964 at the Washington Coliseum. I I just don't think there's any... Their very first one was the best. Yeah, their very first one was... It was like their Citizen Kane, wasn't it? (laughs) Start at the top and work your way down. Well, not that things fell off that much, at least in 64. No, they didn't. They didn't. There was something about, once again, a bit of nervousness. I, I loved how... Lennon really doesn't say anything for the first few minutes, you know, uncharacteristically. He doesn't introduce a song throughout the whole concert. No, and they kind of push George out there to, you start the show. (laughs) I don't want to do it, you do it. I wonder what the backstage conversation was like. He Mm. obviously was the only one that had been to the U.S. ahead of time. George, you've earned it. You're opening the show tonight. They know you. They've seen you before. Anyway, um, what could be more exciting than this insane version of Long Tall Sally uh, that you're about to hear. And do pay special attention to the end where Ringo goes into his crazy syncopated drum thing, bobbing his head. I mean, the visual is just outstanding with this as well. But man, the sound, I think the sound stands up on its own. Thank you very much. Well, uh, this next song will definitely be the last one. We've, uh, We've already... Yeah, yeah. We've already overrun our time, so we'd like to, before we go, we'd like to thank everybody for coming tonight. Thank you. Thank you all. We'd like to do another song, which is quite an old song in America, but it's one that's always been a big favorite of ours. I'm on a ten, baby. Out of the time, baby, let the music play again. 
What you've got to remember about that performance is it comes immediately after Twist and Shout at the at the Washington Coliseum, right? That, that, that's the closer. It's the one-two punch. Yeah. Lennon-McCartney bringing back to America American rock and roll. Absolutely. And in what fashion, man? I mean, they just absolutely nail it. You know, talk about having the opportunity to realize all your dreams and just grabbing it with both hands. And that's what the whole band does. As you said, Ringo's just playing out of his skull. If you watch the film, it's amazing. I mean, he's just beating holy shit out of that kid. And, you know, George is like just ripping through it as well. And Paul's vocal, I don't know it's ever been better in terms of live and certainly recorded. This is a standout. Yeah, actually, the record, the the studio version doesn't have this. You know, this is sort of, I guess, what uh, Hurricane Smith captured in John on that recording session, you know, when they did the uh, Please Please Me album. If only in the studio we could have caught you know, this type of excitement. But I think Paul especially uh, feeds off the crowd. Um, even yeah. when the other Beatles later in their touring years, uh, it's very rare when Paul turns in a like a half-baked performance. He always seems to go for it. So uh, this yeah. was a fantastic version of that. It's interesting what you say that, feeding off the crowd, because I suppose that stops happening after a time, doesn't it? They start getting so used to this piercing scream that I just guess at some point they stopped feeding off the crowd. They started almost disengaging from that. They stopped feeding off the crowd and were being fed to the crowd. And that, I think, becomes the difference is where it becomes scary, overwhelming. You know, things were changing rapidly. If you examine the Beatles audience at a 1964 summer U.S. show, it's mainly girls and parents, you know, younger girls. And within two years, it's at least 50-50 boys and girls, and they're older. They're teenagers, older teenagers now. And it's a very different energy, a scarier energy. You get a lot more people trying to get up on the stage. Certainly by 66, they get death threats and all kinds of things happening. I really like that, by the way. Instead of feeding off the crowd, they were being fed to the crowd. I mean, slick line and completely true. If you see that pop up in one of my books, I will credit you. Yeah. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but that is the feeling I, I get is is you can tell there's a switch that happens and it, I think it happens towards the end of the U.S. summer tour in '64. They're they're suddenly getting tired, and this yeah. that they never did another tour like that, and they were conscious of it. You know, they yeah. I, Lennon somewhere I have him saying, you know, we'll never do another one like this, and. Mm -hmm. I think people took that as, oh, it's been so marvelous. We'll never do anything this wonderful instead of we're never going to do this again. <laughs> you know, no, yeah. this is too yeah. much. But uh, but a great example, and Lennon, you know, uh, I know in 1973 when he was talking to Elliot Mintz uh, on the beach, he mentioned one of the great highlights for him of the of the Beatles experience was going to Australia, and he was still knocked out 10 years later saying, you know, it seems like the whole country turned out to see us. And as we know, they had a fine time at the hotel as well. You know, Paul's birthdays, I think after a while they should have stopped celebrating them. <laughs> they always got up to late. The, the best story of that, I mean, you know about the orgy and, right, Paul's, uh -huh. 20, uh, what's, I guess it was his 22nd birthday, right? Yeah. So one of the guys from... Sounds Incorporated was on like a 50th anniversary or 40th anniversary of the Beatles playing in Australia. And of course, he was one of the opening acts. 
And he was talking about how much sex they were having down in Australia. And he goes, you know, I don't know how we didn't come home with a bunch of uh, paternity suits. He goes, I guess we were all firing blanks in those days. The theater of the mind, Richard. It's what you bring to it, Eric. Thank you, yes. Anyway, from the evening show. So this is uh, the Beatles now are reunited. Jimmy Jimmy Nickel has now been given his gold watch and he's gone. And, and Ringo is back behind the drum kit after passing out. Uh, and missing the first, you know, missing the Hong Kong show and missing the Holland shows and missing a few Australian shows. Here we are, the intact Beatles, and uh, John Lennon definitely turns in the best performance I can think of, of You Can't Do That. I got something to say that might cause you pain Yeah, excellent. I love that performance. It's being shown quite a lot. Of course, it's in anthology. Um, beautiful film. Just a great concert. The energy's there. They've got Ringo back. I think they're really happy. And this particular song, you can't do that. Raw Lennon, right? With that lead guitar on here. And uh, it's very faithful to the record. It is. And it's one that I know... Uh... Murray the K, for example, singled that one out as he felt that that was a real, 
an, a Beatles original, but he thought it sounded very Motown to his ears, which I thought in the time period interests me. Yeah, it makes sense. You know, and he thought it was tremendous. And of course, George was very outspoken when they would ask, what's your favorite recording that you've made, as they did in Australia in one of the press conferences. George, right to the fore, oh, you can't do that. I like that one. That was his favorite at the time, which was the flip side of Can't Buy Me Love. So was that a little kind of dig at Paul? In other words, oh, the A side, eh, take it or leave it, you know. (laughs) But the B side, baby. Now, we were looking for the best recorded performance that we could get our hands on of this boy. Got it at Washington, got it on the Morecambe and Wise show. Got it various places, but you came up with this one and I agreed when you played it to me. Combination. Great symbiotic energy between crowd and Beatles. It's such a great unity. And I think when that happens, it lifts every performance because the crowd is almost on cue, screaming in all the right places. <laughs> and uh, yeah. it just And, and this is back in Melbourne, isn't it? This is the same show as, as You Can't Do That. And uh, yeah, it's just... They uh, are going to not be doing this song very much longer, you know. Um, and I think this is one of those times where they didn't laugh or flub a line. And mm. they're all gathered around one microphone. It's a special, special song to me live because... I agree. You know, they could have all just spread out and done it, but it's the idea that they had to come in close quarters with each other. And I can't think of another Beatles recording of any other songs live where they three of them are are singing around one microphone so it's right. uh, it's just something really really special to me and and like i say they just nail it thank you thank you the next song is a little bit slower <laughs> and um, it was the b side of i want to hold your hand and it's called this boy
Yeah, that's a thing of beauty. Builds to that bridge section, doesn't it? And uh, he delivers. All of them do on that one, I yeah. think. So we yeah. skip ahead now. We're into the summer of 64. And of everything we've been listening to, this was a purpose-built recording in a sense. So Capital decides ahead of time, probably after seeing what was going on in Australia, oh, we got to make a cash-in record. Let's record the Beatles at the Hollywood Bowl. And they do. And it's kind of interesting because obviously it didn't come out until 13 years later, 1977. And by the way, when it did come out, didn't it seem like it was something from 100 years ago? Oh, God, yeah. You, you know, you're talking to a guy who in 73, as a Beatles fan at school, was taking heat, even from the English teacher, saying, but didn't they split up three years ago, as if it was like a lifetime? <laughs> well, things had been changing so rapidly. Even by 68, the Hollywood Bowl would have seemed quaint. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, Oh, yeah. And... I mean, now it takes on, we're, we're able to, we have this distance of time. And I think at the time, I remember when it came out being very excited because I'd had the bootlegs and I didn't have a bootleg of the 65 material, which was mixed in with the 64 as a sort of hybrid for whatever reason. Uh, I always thought that was kind of weird. But this next song was left off of those releases because when there's a little flub up in the middle of the song, the energy A level, little flub up? yeah. Is that kind of American version of a cock-up? Yeah, Flubber, Son of Flubber. They, they kind of mess something up, but it's just momentary. Now, you know, we've got Pro Tools. You could fix that in a second, and they would, because the energy of this version of A Hard Day's Night, to me, outstrips the one that they used from the 65 show. The next song we're going to do is our latest record. I hope you still remember it. It's our title song from our film. It's called A Hard Day's Night. It's been a hard day's night And I've been working like a dog It's been a hard day's night I should be sleeping like a love But when I get home to you I find the things that you do That make me feel alright You know I work all day To get your money to buy a thing And it's worth it just to hear you say They're gonna give me Everything. So why I nurse your ammo is when I get you alone. You know I feel okay. When I'm home, everything seems to be right. When I'm home, feeling you holding me tight, tight, yeah. It's been a hard day's night, and I've been working like a duck. It's been a hard day's night. Like a love. But when I get home to you, I find the things that you do will make me feel alright. Sleeping like a lot 
But when I get on to you, I find the things that you do Make me feel alright You know I feel alright You know I feel alright Thank you very much, sir Listening to that, what's interesting is I remember John saying, you know, God, those shows, you know, they were like bloody tribal rights and we were always speeding up, which is what one tends to do on stage, either if you're nervous or you're just trying to get off. It is fast. It's really fast. And we know about, you know, on tape, they sped up the solo. Yes. And here it's like at breakneck speed. It's faster than the record. And George is doing it live. And it's awesome. It just to me, I can live. Part of the live experiences are things don't always go perfectly, but it's such an endearing performance and high energy level. And obviously, the film was just out in America and was bringing a whole new dimension to the Beatles. I think they must have been enormously proud because you know old Hollywood would be on record now saying, you know what, that's a hell of a movie, and uh, those guys are doing fantastic business. There's got to be something to it, and it was almost. Shock, you know, it went in a few months where old Hollywood and old showbiz people were kind of snickering at the hair, and then suddenly it's like, okay, in your face, Hollywood people, you go do a movie like this. Uh, it must have been very scary, I think, for some of these people. But, but a hard day's night, I think, was symbolic for the absolute conquering of everything. Now we're now the kings of all media to steal something from Howard Stern, and. Yeah. Uh, I, something about that performance in Hollywood, right? For them yep. to have performed it with that energy uh, and that gusto. Singing a song from the first album that we ever made, a song which was originally recorded by a group called the Sorrells. Just a minute, check in. Yeah. Yeah. Singing a song called Boys Ringo! Hey, 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 hey,
When they re-released the Hollywood Bowl album in 2016, uh, this was chosen to have a video made for it, actually. And I just love the energy and uh, the excitement in Ringo's voice. I don't think I ever heard him sing it with a more excited, convincing voice. Yeah, I mean, he's fighting that crowd and he's belting, isn't he? He's really going for it. He's got the energy and the power in the voice to do it, actually. Uh, what's interesting to me is they seem to go backwards and forwards with Ringo on stage in terms of boys and I want to be your man. How did that play out? So that, I take it in the early sort of performances with him, he's doing boys. Then he goes to I want to be your man and then he reverts back to boys. I think it's actually the other way around. He started out doing boys, does I want to be your man, and then continues on with I want to be your man in 66, for example. So... I think the best explanation of what you're, why did they waffle back and forth from boys to I want to be your man, the, the best evidence that I can think of is something the public really hasn't seen. And the Beatles in October of 64 would go do Jack Good's show Shindig at the Granville Theater in London. Right. And if you see the outtakes, it's fascinating. Ringo's having real trouble singing boys. And it, it, there's a breakdown in one part of it where he just goes, I can't do it. You know, it's like really, really upset at himself, and uh, you could see that he finally does get it, but he can't get the opening note, you know? Hmm. And he just keeps coming in flat, and, you know, the other guys are kind of, you know, looking at him, but he just, he's very upset. I just can't do it, I can't. And they, I think he had to take a few minutes, and then they, they calmed him down, and he got it. So that would be my guess is, I guess Boys was harder for him to perform than I Want to Be Your Man, and I think he does such a you know, heroic job with it at the Hollywood Bowl. It's kind of amazing to me that only two months later, he's in a TV studio, just just couldn't find it. Yeah, I think Boys is a more difficult vocal for him. It's bloody hard, right? You know, again, in these days, he's really pounding away and he's belting away at the same time. Exactly. And, and I think the other thing that always amuses me about him doing Boys, uh, and they kind of addressed it on a couple of interviews, certainly when they were doing their residency in Paris earlier in, in 64, in January, they turned out quite a large gay contingent. And I know George kind of made fun of it uh, a little bit. But think about it here. You know, French people, they, they see this guy singing about boys. <laughs> you know, was it really such a, a leap to think that, you know, maybe gay people... Les garçons. Say, yeah, yeah, les garçons uh, de la plage. De right? la plage, yeah, I knew you were going there. A French beach boy. Oh, well, you don't get me going on the ruddles. <laughs> well, we move a couple of weeks beyond boys and the exuberance of Hollywood Bowl, which is really at, right at the beginning. They've only done a few shows. By the time on, we get on their first full U.S. tour, on their first full U.S. tour, but within a couple of weeks, they're they're being ground down. And and then part of this was kind of the crazy way they had, had to crisscross the country. I don't think people. Maybe Brian at the time didn't realize, you know, Denver to Cincinnati is a long flight type of thing. And and mm. so I think it could have been better planned in a sense on how they actually flowed from city to city. But it was yeah. what it was. By the time we get to September, the Beatles are starting to wear down a little bit. You see it in the press conferences. You can see them getting bored. It's not the same energy level that they'd been earlier on. Oh, definitely. As a matter of fact, the next performance is the first indicator for me that things are starting to get a little tiring. So this is a, a tape that resurfaced 
There's been a bootleg for many, many years of this Philadelphia show on September 2nd. And it used to be called The Beatles Live at Whiskey Flats in Atlanta. For God knows why, because... For one thing, what is Whiskey Flats? And number two, they didn't play Atlanta until the next year. So why it got this kind of crazy thing? I mean, it's typical bootleg mentality of the time to sort of disguise things. Yeah, and just give it a kind of attractive name, Whiskey Flats. Yeah, it's weird. But it it was a a great recording, a board tape in Philadelphia. And this is the best version I've ever heard Paul sing live of Can't Buy Me Love. He had a little bit of trouble sometimes keeping up with it at, say, the Hollywood Bowl, which is the more famous performance. And a fresh digital copy of this tape was made about four or five years ago. And that's where I'm taking this from. So, yeah, let's hear Can't Buy Me Love and If I Fell from Philadelphia. Can't buy me love. Before we do the next number, I'd like you to wait a minute while George changes his guitar. Changing his guitar. The song we're going to do when he's ready is a song from a new, mo- new movie we just made called The Hard Day. It's a slow song and it's called If I Fell. If I fell in love with you, would you promise to be true? Help me understand, cause I've been in love before And I found that love was more than just holding hands If I gave my heart to you, I 
just love that recording it's it's great quality really good performance as you said a fantastic performance of can't buy me love and a really nice one of if i fell i mean we were saying that we're going to do another show about the more interesting tracks but this was one where the performance stood up also that little indication you know john is introducing if i fell and he goes if i fell over yeah uh, that's really the like i say oh he's they're tired you're getting tired but it's and it's really hard to get a performance of If I Fell where there's not laughing going on. And the reason that is, and a lot of people have asked me, well, why do they always laugh at that? Ah, there's a couple of films that reveal why. This was the part of the show when John would talk about, uh, we're going to take a minute while George changes his guitar. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, you've all seen John on the 64 tour, especially doing the, the spaz thing with his leg, right? Stamping his yep. leg. Paul had his own little thing. And what Paul would do is, on several shows, there's film of this. As John is introducing If I Fell, Paul is making fun of John. And he gets down on one knee in Boston Garden and just, voila, you're John Lennon type of thing. He's not saying anything, but Lennon's Mm kind of like looking out of the corner of his eyes and trying to not laugh. And Paul would kind of really ham it up. And so the audience is laughing and cheering. And then they'd go into it. And that's why I think they always giggle a little bit. I think John felt very self-conscious about that. Like, you know, why did Paul choose that moment, that song, every show? If he's going to have his little spaz dance moment, his his stage act, he chose there to do it. Could have been in, you know, other songs, but for whatever reason. Paul's complicit. In all, I mean, Lennon takes heat these days about, you know, his impersonations of the disabled but Paul was the straight man, right? Paul yeah. just played the straight man to that. So it's like any comedy team. And so I think it's kind of interesting in this case that you're saying it's Paul who's taking over the comic role. Oh, absolutely. And it's it's the same disruptive idea. So, you know, usually uh, Paul's introducing, uh, you know, okay, this is the one we got to clap along and sing with us. And that's why, you know, John decided to tease him about it. Well, now we have John doing his vulnerable ballad from the, the new movie, 
and Paul's, you know, okay, this is my chance to get a little dig in. And, and uh, as I say, it's the most beautiful version of this is, is from a film uh, from Boston Garden, of all places, where you just see the full thing unfold, and you can see how funny it really was, because he kind of builds up to it, and he's almost like creeping around behind John, and then he just drops to his knees. You're John Lennon, you know. Sing to us, John. Given the sort of reception, you know, that on this U.S. tour with the screaming fans, it's a brave song to be doing, you know, given that they didn't have onstage monitors they're going into this sort of death in a way, right? And yeah. uh, to lock in like that, uh, that's quite an achievement. And they very rarely blew it. You know what I mean? Like there's not many yeah. blue notes in any of those live performances. But you'll notice uh, at least Lennon kind of shies away from ever doing that again live. I really can't think, I mean, not just the song If I Fell, but doing a ballad by yeah, himself. Yeah, it leaves him more exposed. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, so... But but as I say, that was later in the tour, and uh, God, even a few days later is that press conference in Chicago where people say, well, where would you like to go next? And John says, I'd like to go home. And it yeah. kind of causes a ripple. Oh, you, you really? Why? You don't like it in America? He goes, no, I love America. It's just I'm tired. I want to go home. You asked me where I want to go. That's where I want to go. I want to go to bed. Yeah. Now, talking about a surly attitude... Next, we got George. Well, they took some honey from a tree, dressed it up, and they called it. Everybody's trying to be my baby. Everybody's trying to be my baby. Everybody's trying to be my baby now. We got last night, half past four, fifteen women knocking on my door. Everybody's trying to be my baby. Everybody's trying to be my baby. Everybody's trying to be my baby now, yeah. When I last night did say late, pull home had a night to day. Everybody's trying to be my baby. We've now leapt ahead to 1965, and 
There is no more joking around on stage from here on out in the Beatles' career. Well, you say that. I mean, at Shea Stadium, you do have, you know, John messing around on stage. That one show, yeah, and that's the beginning of the tour. Well, the beginning of the U.S. tour. And he does actually come to think it. No, you're right. I'll take that back because in the 65, you know, Spanish gigs, for example, John is clowning around with his kind of strange bullfighter type hats and Spanish hats and things. So he, there's still a little bit of playfulness, yeah. but it's it's coming to an end pretty fast. I agree. I mean, they're no longer doing lots of TV and radio, not, not nearly as much. And those comedy skits that they used to participate in, those are really oh, definitely. a thing of the yeah. past. It's much more business. And even the banter on stage is not, they don't really interact with each other so much as they do maybe saying something to the crowd. And it's very, very predictable and scripted. They're also now playing stadium. Well, at least, you know, in t- in terms of Shea, it's a stadium as opposed to a theater or an arena. Yeah, and th- there was a couple of examples of that in 64. I mean, all hell broke loose when they, the first real stadium I can think of them playing in was uh, Vancouver at Empire Stadium. And that was, you know, very nearly a disaster in the sense that it's a, yeah. it's a miracle nobody got killed at that show. Uh, when you look at the mm. film, there's actually a, some years ago when I was working on Eight Days, I tracked down a police film. One of my little secrets, folks, contact your local police departments uh, because I've found more training films around the Beatles' appearances in cities. Uh, it's a really interesting resource. Yeah, just don't dial 999 in the UK or 911 in the States. It's not an emergency. <laughs> not an no, emergency. you've got to go to your local police and just say, hey, uh, you know, do you guys ever make any home movies? Yeah, you've you got to be careful, Eric. You know, when you, you sort of tell people things oh, like I, this, you've got to be I'm, careful. That's, I looked for your elder wisdom, your nine months, you know, extra on the planet. I probably would have figured that out in nine months. <laughs> so, as we were saying, everybody's trying to be my baby. Yes, his chestnut for this tour, as opposed to rollover Beethoven, uh, he goes to Carl Perkins, right? Everybody's trying to be my baby now from a TV broadcast in Gay Paris. Yeah, it's, I think, one of his best performances that we've got of that, for sure. I've never been that crazy on the song, but he puts it over well. Again, you know, I'm listening for the guitar work. It's okay. It's not like any standout performance here, but it kind of made the cut. Well, a favorite song of his dating back to, you know, Germany and uh, the cavern, something he could do in his sleep. And I think in a sense, they kind of had to start choosing material like that. Having no monitors, crowds are getting bigger and much louder. As you know, if you watch the rest of that Paris broadcast, it's once again mostly a male audience, and they're singing along, and they're loud. Yeah, but at least they're into it this time around in Paris, right? Whereas the previous year hadn't been quite as enthusiastic. I don't know. You know, I think I I, I think a part of it was more of a, an adult crowd when they were playing the Olympia. Mm. You know, I think, uh, and it's much smaller. You know, this is the sports stadium on the south side of the city. And much stuffier. Yes. Well, I think people went to the Olympia. If you see those films, people walking in, they're they're dressed to the nines and you know, women in beautiful yeah. gowns and their you know, their husbands yeah. or, or boyfriends or whatever in like tuxes and stuff. This is now kids. This this is a young crowd, yeah. more the uniform crowd that they would get around the world. Funny, you just reminded me as we were talking about older people in Paris going to see the Beatles. One of the great carrots on a stick out there somewhere is there's a recording of the Princess Theater 1964 with uh, Jimmy Nickel on drums. 
the Beatles playing in Hong Kong. Exactly, and uh, the one of the traits Kowloon. I've never heard the tape, but I've been told by people who have heard it that what's really interesting is the crowd are dead quiet until the songs end. You know, there's no screaming because it's all adults, and so they just mm. kind of listen and listen, and then they applaud at the end. But there's not the Beatle craziness that you've come to expect. So I'm hoping one of these days that tape's going to creep out and we'll all get to hear it. Anyway, everybody's trying to be my baby. This performance, George does get in his Chet Atkins licks. And as you said, I'm sure he could do that in his sleep. Yeah, and I think things kind of had to be that way because uh, doing their own material live was getting much more difficult. And this next song is a a great case in point because uh, John had a tendency to mix up uh, lyrics on this one. So it's kind of hard to get a really uh, clean, great live version of, of a favorite song of both of us which is Ticket to Ride. This one comes from Blackpool Night Out, August 1st, 1965. They're just about to go back for their second American summer tour. And I think there's a great energy to this performance and great precision, which was kind of lacking in some of the later ones. Thank you very much, everybody. Blackpool. Blackpool and all that's lovely to be here. We'd like to carry on now, in a sec, with a song which is our record before... Record before... You know. And this one's called... Oh, ticket to ride. I think I'm gonna be sad. Thank you. 
Yeah, that's a nice recording, isn't it? It's, it's just a, a nice all-around performance. They, they, they're pretty good at that show, Blackpool Night Out. They, they, I think they rehearsed it more than they would their upcoming final British tour. Oh, yes, I think so. Um, you mean the one that's coming up in the in December, that short tour that they Correct. did? Correct, yeah. Yeah, and, but in the meantime, they, as I say, they have to head off to do another summer tour of the U.S. And I think one of the great highlights, the next couple of songs are from the 65 tour. They're actually both from uh, the Hollywood Bowl, except they're on different days. And this next one especially, uh, poor John's voice... Uh, you know, was having issues at certain points of the 65 tour, notably in Houston, of which there's also some board recordings, but his, his voice is a little bit rough. This, however, uh, on the 29th of August, 1965, uh, he delivers a killer version of an old chestnut, Dizzy Miss Lizzie. When you rock and roll, you make me dizzy, Miss Lizzie. When you do the stuff, come on, come on, come on, come on, baby. Love me before I go to Gonna tell you, Mama, I want you to be my bride. Run and tell your brother, baby, don't run alive. Come on, Miss Lizzie, love me till I'm satisfied. Put your little hand in mine Come on, Miss Lizzie Yeah, it looks so fine Come on, come on, come on, come on, Dizzy Love me till the end of time
Thank you very much, everybody, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and all the rest. Thank you. Interesting, Richard, that this was not the version that they used. The, obviously, the Beatles played the 29th and the 30th of August at the Hollywood yeah. Bowl. Two gigs, both recorded. And I'm not quite sure why they didn't use this one. There's, there seems to be just a little more oomph in this for me. Uh, I agree. I, I do prefer this one because, in fact, you ran the early one by me and I sort of said, oh, I think maybe we can do better than this. And this one delivers. A second choice also, I really thought about the Dizzy Miss Lizzie from Shea Stadium. Um, yeah. The only problem with anything from Shea Stadium is how much, you know, obviously, uh, sweetening live recordings and going in and fixing mistakes has been going on forever. Uh, yeah. One of my friends who's more of a Stones person used to say that the get your yayas out, the only thing left really live was the audience. Uh, for example, for the Stones record that they did. Well, James Brown's late engineer, Ron Lenhoff, told me that James Brown's Live at the Apollo, they used crowd sounds from the ballpark. <laughs> That's, I'd rather, yeah, you know, I'd rather fly in the audience. Well, see, oh, there's another problem with, uh, with Shea Stadium, right? Because the audience mostly is from, is from Hollywood Bowl. Yeah. And, and so they, they goofed yeah. with so many things in there. I was like, you know what? Even though that's how live albums are made these days, I wanted to stay to something that was more pure. And uh, absolutely. So, so there we go. And so, our next song, by the way, speaking of fantastic performances, Paul could really, really bring it. And she's a woman. is a wonderful record, a sort of white soul record, plastic soul. But boy, does he bring "She's a Woman" to life on the 30th of August at the Hollywood Bowl, 1965. Don't be fooling, I know 
That's a fantastic performance. I think that is the best one that we've got of him. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure that he had a mic failure issue on the 29th. It's interesting, the 29th show had a few technical glitches in it, and, uh, you know, that I think that might have colored the executive's uh, view of it. "Eh, The second night went a little bit smoother. We'll we'll deal with that one. You know, Paul had an amp blow up on the 29th, I think it was. Yeah. So, uh, but anyway, great performance. It really, as I say, I think it outstrips the studio version. It's more exciting. It's more visceral. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt, you know, that in 65, they were still holding their own in concert. As you said, you know, some of the energy level had gone, but I think they were fired up by playing Shea at the time. You know, in retrospect, they might have, you know, said like a bloody tribal, right? But at the time, I think they were really fired up. It was just bigger all the time, not necessarily better. But when we get to 66, trying to find, you know, we weren't specifically looking for something in 66, were we? Say, we've got to have something from there. We were just looking for the best performances. And it just so happened that the final track for this show, The Closer, was from 66. Yeah, I such a pity that um, some of the other concerts that they did in 66, I mean, obviously the German, uh, you know, there's there's a TV show from Germany that was recorded. Yeah. The two shows from Tokyo that were, were videotaped, for whatever reason, that first show on, on the 30th of June, they just seemed tired. And obviously they had had a hellacious journey where they got waylaid from Germany in Alaska for a few hours and there's a typhoon happening and then... You know, they just seem a little out of sorts. It's not a bad show. It's just the songs mm. are starting to get harder to, to perform. Uh, they're using different guitars now. You know, they're using different amplifiers. And I, I kind of look at the 66 tour. It's like, it's almost like the closest the Beatles get to heavy metal until, you know, revolution or something for in a couple of years. Yeah. One of the times that Paul really, I think, got into doing I'm Down, which for whatever reason, they decide to replace on the American tour with Long Tall Sally. So it's amongst the last performances he would do of that song as a Beatle. And I think the July 1st show in Tokyo, I was working on a project and I got to see a much closer copy of the videotape of the Light Suits show, as we call it, mm-hmm. than normally. And it was being projected on this state-of-the-art system. And this song came on and I just went, wow, this really was like being there. And so, yeah, Mm. great way to close this and let Paul say This next song now uh, will have to be our last song for this afternoon. And so, before we go, we'd like to say to everybody, thank you for coming. Thank you very much, and we hope you've enjoyed it. And uh, so, as they say, in rom-com, sayonara. You tell lies, thing and I can't see You can't cry cause you're laughing at me I'm down, I'm really down It's not down 
Beatles, Naked. Post-production by Richard Buskin. Theme music by Craig Bartow. If the audience in the studio here will kindly let me get to the end of this announcement, which is unlikely, I'd like to tell you, tuned to the show at home, that it's our pleasure right now to present Britain's biggest attraction, The Beatles! It's almost a year since the Beatles first hit the show business jackpot. So all, all the rest of the numbers that you're going to hear today are the big hits that the boys have achieved during the past 12 months.